bum bum bottom 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 bum
But in the X Factor, he was human garbage. He was. I'm sticking by it. <laughs> we love the X Men, and I think it's currently the only comic on the stands that both of us are currently reading. Dawn of X and Jonathan Hickman. Oh my! Oh my! Oh my! Oh my! We do love it so. It's going to take tremendous restraint on my part to not make this entire episode about Moira McTaggart. Oh, no. Yeah. No, no. No Moira. We're not talking Moira. Maybe a little Moira. Maybe just a little bit. Uh, We're starting our conversation, though, in 2020 surrounding Rogue and Gambit during their early cat and mouse flirtation period as seen in the 90s era adjectiveless X-Men book. As you probably know, this is the time period where I fell in love with comics and, you know, A big part of that love affair was Jim Lee and those X-Men comics. Amazing art. Yeah. But Lisa, you were never a part of that scene. You were too young. You weren't reading comics at the time. You were never a bandwagon jumper like your husband. And while you've read plenty of X-Men comics at this point, what's your actual relationship with Rogue and Gambit? I was first introduced to Rogue through the X-Men films. So I guess I was somewhat of a bandwagon jumper because I had seen before you some of the X-Men films in the theater. I definitely saw X2 in the theater because that was 2003 when I was dating another unnamed nerd. Yeah, keep him unnamed. I don't want to hear about (laughs) him. The most I know about Rogue was what a big deal she was in 2014. Mm-hmm. where they did, it was Days of Futures Past, and they did a whole separate cut of the film. Oh, yeah, because Rogue. Anna Paquin was, like, removed from the theatrical, and then they brought her back for the digital release. Yeah, Or bizarre. the DVD release. Yeah. Uh, Gambit, I don't think I've even read a comic that has Gambit in it, or if I did, I didn't really notice him. Maybe I saw him in one of the X-Men cartoons at, like, a friend's house, but honestly... He means nothing to me. Yeah. So this is basically your big introduction to both of those characters. Yeah. So while I loved this era of X-Comics, even as a kid, I never really dug these two. Uh, Maybe it was the way they were written. Depending on the writer, their accents would flare up in an extreme way. And I remember just skipping over their word balloons because I didn't want to do the work (laughs) of recognizing Rogue's Oz as eyes, you know? Yeah. Uh, Then there was the cartoon series from the 90s, and Gambit's Cajun accent drove me crazy as a kid. And as a result, I never gravitated towards them as a couple Ever. I feel like there are so many X-Men bouncing around in these comics that when you pick your favorite, it's almost like picking your favorite color. Like, well, I have to choose one, so it's going to be Scott. And yeah, then- yeah, kind of. You know, like, I decided when I was a child that green was my favorite color, and to this day, green is my favorite color. Just like Scott Summers, when I was 11 years old, I was like, that's my X-Man. And if you pick Scott Summers... You got some pretty good stories. If you picked Wolverine, you got a ton of good stories. That's right, but Wolverine feels too obvious. Wolverine is the blue of of X-Men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm really excited about this month. And I, you know, spoilers, going back to this era 
reading these comics with a focus on Rogue and Gambit, I, I've, I've, I'm starting to develop a little crush on these two. Aww. And I'm really excited to see where we go later on this month in a couple of other storylines. But we have to give credit where credit is due. I don't think we would actually be covering Rogan Gambit if it were not for Apple J on Twitter. She's been a longtime listener, and she's been asking for a Rogue and Gambit series of podcasts from nearly the beginning. Well, Apple J, this one is for you. I have a long dedication to Apple J in my section as well. This is she has decided the direction of this episode. Well, that's a lot of pressure, right? We, you know, we want to do right by Apple J, and we don't want to anger her. We we don't want to repeat the frustration that people had over our X Factor opinions. Unlike most of our previous four-episode couple conversations, we have this entire series planned out, or at least the story arcs that we're covering. And that's a big thank you to Apple J, as well as Emily, a.k.a. AngstyX on Twitter, for taking an evening of going back and forth with me on Twitter, determining the best comics to cover that capture the entire spirit of Rogue and Gambit's relationship. We gotta refer to the experts. Yeah, it's extremely valuable, uh, and we need that help with some of these couples. So, for the uninitiated, me, who the heck are Rogue and Gambit? Please tell me. You may have noticed our episode title, CBCC 36, Rogue and Remy. Why no first name for Rogue? She does have one. It's Anne-Marie. Spoilers. But that name would not be revealed until nearly 20 years after her creation. And as such, I have never thought of the character by any other name than Rogue. Gambit, on the other hand, he happily allows folks to call him by his name, Remy LeBeau. Uh, So we're going to go with Rogue and Remy. Rogue first appeared in Avengers Annual Number 10 in 1981, written by Chris Claremont and penciled and colored by Michael Golden with Armando Gill Inks. She's a mutant and a Southern Belle. For most of her life, she had an involuntary ability to absorb the memories, physical strength, and superpowers of anyone she touches. As such, she believed herself cursed and utterly isolated from humanity. At the time of her introduction, she was a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, having been reared by her adoptive mother, Mystique. She didn't join the X-Men until after she permanently absorbed Ms. Marvel, a.k.a. Carol Danvers, a.k.a. the current Captain Marvel's psyche and Kree powers during a confrontation. Gambit is Remy LeBeau. He made his brief first appearance in Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 14, but his big coming out party happened in Uncanny X-Men Number 266, written by Chris Claremont, penciled by Mike Collins, and inked by Joseph Rubenstein. But... Jim Lee is the one listed as co-creator of the character alongside Chris Claremont. Why? Well, while he did not draw this particular issue, at the time, Lee was the main ex-artist and his fame was increasing dramatically. The more popular he became, the more input he had on the book alongside Claremont. This would only increase as the adjectiveless X-Men title would launch. More on that later. Anyway, Gambit is the raging Cajun mutant. His ability allows him to create, manipulate, and control kinetic energy, which he often applies to a deck of cards and his bow staff. Before joining the X-Men, he also had a slightly shady past as a member of the Thieves Guild and married clan head Bella Donna Boudreaux. That relationship has a few hiccups and allows Gambit to shimmy up next to Rogue. With such dark and troubled pasts, any kind of romance between Rogue and Gambit was destined to be shaky, and that is absolutely the appeal of their coupling, right? So for those joining the podcast for the first time, we don't just dive into their love affair using our weak butt knowledge <laughs> and 10 years of wedded bliss experience. We also request the help of a relationship guru to aid in the conversation. Lisa, whose advice are we seeking this month? 
The suggestion of love guru Dr. John Gottman, PhD, was the suggestion from our fave, Apple J on Twitter, and she is right on the money. I think it's pretty safe to say that Dr. Gottman's name has been dropped in every single one of our Love Guru's books. Oh, really? Including Brene Brown, Dr. Stan Tatkin, and Common. Gottman is the name in psychological research relating to love and marriage stability. He has done over four decades of extensive laboratory research on the topics of love and relationships. He is a professor emeritus at the University of Washington. I looked that up, what professor emeritus means. It just means a professor who doesn't profess anymore, but he gets to keep the name. (laughs) Fancy. He is co-founder with his wife, co-author, and colleague, Dr. Julie Schwartz-Gottman of the Gottman Institute, and in 2007 was named one of the 10 most influential therapists of the past quarter century in a survey done by the Psychotherapy Networker funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. I'm not sure if this is going to have anything to do with the book, but his Wikipedia page mentions that his work had a tremendous influence on social sequence analysis, which is the study of how our social behaviors relate to our DNA, RNA, and peptide sequences. I'm not entirely sure what that means or if I'm (laughs) explaining it correctly, but do you know who would know? Apple J, because she is a molecular genetics technologist. How freaking cool is that? Super cool. Yeah, our listeners. I really don't want to disappoint her. The stakes are so high right now. (laughs) For Rogue and Gambit, I decided to go with the most recent book with the Gottman name on it, Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love, mostly because it should, in theory, have the most up-to-date research. And for most of the arcs that we're reading for Rogue and Gambit, they're not married yet. They're just dating. John Gottman is not the sole author of this book. There are, in fact, three co-authors listed, including his wife and colleague, Julie Schwartz-Gottman, who is also a psychologist, and another married couple, Doug Abrams and Rachel Carlton Abrams, who are both MDs. There is even a with Laura Love Harden, whom I have not Googled yet. I don't know what her deal is, <laughs> other than sharing a middle name with Jennifer Hewitt. Next episode, I promise to highlight the accomplishments of Dr. Julie Schwartz-Gottman. She has co-authored on many of John's books, and I don't mean to diminish her by listing her husband's accomplishments first. Brad and I actually have a term for that, being wifed, (laughs) which happens to me occasionally when Brad and I do film festivals and things where people assume I'm only there because I'm Brad's wife and not because I'm my own person with my own aspirations and accomplishments. You like movies too? I do, and being wifed feels not good. That's what I hear. I plan to thoroughly husband John Gottman next week. We are equal opportunity diminishers here at CBCC. The conceit of eight dates, essential conversations for a lifetime of love, is that a couple will take an hour out of their week for eight weeks to go on these prescribed dates with prescribed conversation topics outlined in each chapter as a means of establishing a lasting, successful relationship. Successful meaning till death do us part. We understand that it's not everyone's goal or best life to have one partner over multiple decades or until one or both of you kick. But it is our goal as a married couple and the goal of this book. So far, I've read all of the introductory material and this is what I've learned so far. 
The word date implies a screening process for choosing the right partner. Back in the old days, you'd go to a soda fountain or the sock cop. <laughs> you'd feel attracted to someone. You'd make eyes at them. Then you'd go on a couple of dates to see if you like them. You neck in the back of your T-bird, and then you get married. <laughs> Nowadays, there are dating sites and apps that claim to do the screening for you. Neither Brad nor I have ever used a dating app, so I'm going very much off of surface-level zeitgeisty ideas <laughs> about what online dating That's is. What we do. But you fill out some kind of questionnaire about who you are and who you'd like to be with, and then the computer would use an algorithm to spit out some matches of people based on your criteria. You'd think that would result in someone you're compatible with, but perhaps the science doesn't back that up. Eight Dates cites a study by Samantha Joel of the University of Utah that measured a hundred variables that would likely appear on a dating app survey, such as self-esteem, goals, values, loneliness, what they wanted in a partner, and none of these variables predicted the success of the date, which to me means that even when you're with your dream partner on paper, your odds of actually being attracted to that person are no better than chance and equally as likely as being attracted to a person who you would not match up with on an app. What's a single person to do? Go on dates, meet a lot of people, and maybe put some of those preconceived notions aside. Brad, did you have any preconceived notions of the kind of person you'd want to end up with? Uh, no, not, no. I mean, we've talked about it on this podcast before. Like, I, I was not expecting to get into any relationship <laughs> when we got together. I had no future in sight that had a, a wife in it until I, you came around. I remember in high school, me and my friend Amy would fantasize about both marrying singers and she would marry a tenor, and I would marry a baritone, because at that time, she sang soprano, and I sang alto. And I guess the presumption was that we'd gig together. Uh, yeah, okay. But uh, then, with the six years, eight years of music school I did, I did not one time <laughs> date a singer, because, uh, yeah, I just wasn't into any of them. And they, and they weren't into me. But me, my first experience with relationship books was with Amy, because we would go to Barnes and Noble and we would sit in the self-help sections near the relationship books and we would take notes because we wanted boyfriends and <laughs> neither of them, neither of us would have them until college. So let's say you've gone on a couple of dates and now you're with someone. How do you know if they're your till death do you part partner? Well, you could fall in love with them and then run them over with your car. That is an option. <laughs> or you can observe their behavior. 45 years ago, John Gottman and Robert Levinson created their first laboratory, deemed a love lab, at Indiana University. Gottman later set up similar labs at the University of Illinois, University of Washington, UC Berkeley, and the Gottman Institute in downtown Seattle. These labs look like studio apartments in which they observe and monitor couples in every manner imaginable. In one study of 130 newlyweds, couples were observed under ordinary conditions via cameras, wore monitors for electrocardiogram physiology, gave urine samples and blood tests for hormone and immune systems. Also, each couple was asked to tell the story of their relationship in two-hour 
oral history interviews where they were monitored for tone of voice, word usage, gestures, and positive and negative emotions. Since this study, they have studied over 3,000 more relationships, and Gottman and his colleagues have come to some conclusions and claim that they can pinpoint with 94% accuracy which couples stay married and which divorce. Based on their blood and urine? No, it was their behavior. Well, duh. (laughs) Particularly when they talked about their relationship as a narrative. If they spoke positively, it generally worked out. If they spoke negatively, it was less likely to. Eight dates referred to the negativity like a switch being flipped. Like when the negative narrative about the couple starts to dominate the conversation, it is a harbinger of divorce. So what are the conversational signs that we're looking for? Hmm. I'm gearing up to give you a bullet point list. Oh, bring it, bring it, bring it. This is how happy couples talk. Some of these are super obvious. Some of them actually surprised me. Bullet point one, they speak with fondness, affection, and admiration. Mm -hmm. Bullet point number two, they speak with weeness versus no weeness. That sounds dirty. (laughs) I mean, we hyphen-ness. I got it. Versus separateness. Happy couples use words like us, we, and our versus I, me, and mine. Bullet point number three, expansiveness versus withdrawal. Happy couples can describe memories vividly and distinctly. Do they seem energized about their relationship or do they seem bored and lackluster? Are they sharing intimate details or are they being guarded? Bullet point number four, glorifying the struggle. Happy couples have pride in getting through difficult times rather than expressing hopelessness. They're committed versus questioning. Are they proud or are they ashamed of their hard times? It comes down to an intentionality or purpose in staying together. How do unhappy couples talk? Unhappy couples are negative in their words and in their facial expressions. Body language, cynicism, sarcasm, eye rolling are all indications that a negative switch has been flipped and the relationship will decline over time. Disappointment, disillusionment, depression, hopelessness, bitterness. It's not about a lack of hard times happening. It's about how the couple interprets the negative events, which is what I feel like CBCC is all about. Sure. It's all about, it goes back to Brene Brown. Narrative. What is the story that you're telling yourself? If you're telling yourself a negative story about your relationship, it's not going to work out. Yeah, and so, you know, Remy, he's like, I'm going to get this girl. Pursuit, pursuit, pursuit. She's going to love me. She's going to love me. She's going to love me. (laughs) Exactly, and Rogue is skeptical. She's skeptical from the beginning. So they have conflicting narratives. Exactly. Interesting. My question for eight dates is, can that switch be unflipped? Can you fake it till you make it by manufacturing positive behaviors? It made me think of the beginning of a marriage story. Oh yeah. With Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. The movie opens with the unhappy couple at a divorce counselor. Yep. And each person in the couple is tasked with listing the things they still admire about their partner, Adam's Adam Driver's character is able to list strictly positive things, 
But when it's Scarlett Johansson's turn, a lot of the things that she said about her partner reflected negatively on herself. Like, yeah, my husband, ex-husband, is super creative, and it made me feel not creative, right? He was always in charge of a, com- of a conversation or a situation, so it made me back off. So even when she was trying to be positive about her former marriage— she still couldn't help but create a negative narrative, Mm -hmm. which was why she was the one who threw down the final hammer in their divorce. Yeah. And she was happier after it. As we discuss the interactions of Rogue and Gambit in these issues of X-Men Volume 2, I would like us to evaluate the behaviors between these two characters as they have their flirtations and eventually their first proper date to determine if they are happy couple material or not. Yeah, right, right, right. Because, spoilers, we know this couple's endgame is a marriage, but do we see that future in these issues? Right, and we know from living in modern times that marriage doesn't always mean till death do they part. Right, right, right. Yeah, cool. Okay, so let's get into these issues. We're starting with four semi-random comics. We've never done this before. Normally, we focus on one long story arc and pick apart the relationship as it appears in that particular story. But in talking with Apple J and Emily on Twitter, we came to the conclusion that it was best to jump around with a batch of these early 90s comics. I had a blast doing this, but I also cheated because I read way more than these comics. But I know Lisa, she sticks to the homework because she's a good student. That doesn't make me sound like a good student. That makes me sound like you're going above and beyond and I'm only (laughs) doing what's assigned. But let's keep in mind, I did read like a, a quarter of a relationship book as well. Yeah, that's true. That's true. These comics we're talking about are the Adjectiveless X-Men, numbers three, the final Chris Claremont comic, four, eight, and 24. These issues basically cover the early flirtation stages of Rogue and Remy's romance, including their disastrous first date and their semi-successful second date. I loved these comics, but I got to say that I'm really looking forward to going back into our regular method of story selection next week. Me too, because I definitely needed you to fill in some gaps. Yeah, it requires some Wikipedia reading, right? Which Uh, we're not above. (laughs) Which we're not above. Uh, It's also worth noting how strange the artist credits on these books are. You can tell that a major power shift is happening between writers and artists during this decade. The Image Boys are about to revolutionize the industry. And the speculator market is in full swing. So you get things like Claremont's final issue, X-Men number three, which is credited as by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee. No writer, no artist credit mentioned. But then Scott Williams gets an inker credit. Tom Orzakowski gets a letterer credit and Joe Rosas gets his colorist credit. Then in issue number four, we get a single credit line below the resurrection and the flesh title card, and it reads, A Lee, Byrne, Williams, Orzakowski, Roses, Harris, DeFalco, Epic. Issue number eight has a traditional credit box crediting Jim Lee for plots and pencils, Scott Lobdell for uh, script, and Jim Lee and Art Thybert for finishes, no longer called inking. 
Lee is long gone uh, to image by the time issue 24 comes around, but the crediting is back to how we see it on issue three, reading as brought to you by Fabian Nietzsier and Andy Kubert and company, Bill Oakley, letterer, Paul Beckton, colorist, Bob Harris, editor, and Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. I just love seeing this stuff. You can practically hear the arguments that were happening between each issue. For me, the real tragic figure is Chris Claremont, who has been slaving away on these characters. For decades. For decades. (laughs) And then to have all of these young guns come in and take partial credit for what he's built like it seriously bums me out. Well, I mean, they became the driving force in the market, right? right. You know, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, uh, you know, Mark Silvestri, not, splash pages became what was selling comic books, and all those word balloons and captions became less important to the sales, right? So Chris Claremont's value was diminishing as his artist, Jim Lee, was increasing. And then Jim Lee wants, you know, he wants to draw the comics the way he wants to draw them. So he does go full Marvel method. And, you know, he the, the plots belong to him, or at least the breakdowns do. Yeah, but it does create for some wild placement of bubbles where I felt like I had to read things like several times in different orders. The last batch of Chris Claremont comics- Are a tangled mess. Are a tangled mess. They don't read like his earlier stuff. And you can say that, you know, he's worn out, these ideas are tired, or you can literally just feel the tension between these two artists. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about some of those couples, those real-life comic book couples. Uh, and I want I want an honest-to-goodness like documentary or an article about this, but you don't really see it because Chris Claremont's lips are pretty much financially sealed by Marvel at mm-hmm. this point. Yeah. And Jim Lee, he, you know, he made out. <laughs> <laughs> but here we go. Let's talk about the basic plots of the issues that we read. Issue number three, the X-Men have split into two teams, gold and blue. The adjectiveless X-Men followed the exploits of the blue team led by our boy Scott Summers. The third issue is the climax of an epic battle between Magneto and his acolytes aboard asteroid M orbiting above Russia. The blue team has been brainwashed and fighting on the side of Magneto by this point, so the gold team shows up to punch them into their natural selves. Issue number four, Omega Red has been reanimated after a decades-long slumber. The ninja mob clan known as the Hand want Red to kidnap Wolverine because he's got some knowledge they want. The blue team is trying to relax after the events of Asteroid M, and that's when Rogue and Remy attempt their first date, which is interrupted by Omega Red. Issue eight is a much more successful version of issue four and something that X-Books have always taken the time to do. Action is great, but character is everything. The team is relaxing. They need time together after Magneto and Omega Red. It's picnic time. All would be great if the time-traveling Bishop didn't jump to conclusions in his belief that Gambit is responsible for a betrayal that will ultimately tear the X-Men apart during his timeline. Issue 24. Bye-bye, Jim Lee. Oh, hey, what's this? Another comic taking a breather after some serious stuff went down? Rogue and Remy have their first proper date at New York's famous... Papa Gumbo's Cajun Cookout. Banshee and Moira McTaggart discuss starting over after the revelation that she doctored with baby Magneto's DNA. Wow, that was some crazy stuff. (laughs) Scott and Jean meet each other at the airport after Scott's been having a scary chat with Mr. Sinister about his son, who may or may not be the diabolical villain Strife. 
Spoilers, CBCC listeners know that his son is Cable. What? And then there is all this kooky stuff between Betsy Braddock and Quinon, two women who have shared each other's brain, or as Wolverine calls them, two bodies with four brains. We definitely don't have the time or the energy to talk about that weird, weird dynamic. Yeah, I have no idea what's going on there, and uh, my body isn't ready. I'm not ready to know. What I am ready for... It's some Rogan Remy. Yeah. So let's get into it. I think we should start with my introduction to Remy's flirting style <laughs> by the pool. Yes. Which is compliment with a sexual innuendo oh, yeah. upgrade. So issue three. This is the reason we're reading issue three is for this scene, really. Right. So Rogue is having fun in the pool, doing a beautiful swan dive off the diving board. Gambit goes to her, not too shabby, chérie, finest kind, Olympic class cannonball. He doesn't know his dives. Clearly, <laughs> clearly that's a swan dive. Or maybe, or maybe he's nagging him, <laughs> nagging her. But um, then she's like, "You like it, Gambit? I like that and more." Ooh. He means her, her boobs or something. Yeah, <laughs> or something. Her or sweet, something. sweet shapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her touch. He offers her a hand to help her out of the pool, and she's like, "That's not a good idea." And Gambit expresses something that he expresses repeatedly, which is, want to take that risk? Like, yeah. I'm, I'm willing to do that for you, to put myself in this kind of danger. And she physically shoots out of the pool, screaming no, with such force that he is knocked on his behind. What is he thinking there? Is that ego talking? Is he just like, I can handle whatever she can dish. I don't really believe in her power as being that deadly. Whereas Rogue has experienced the deadliness of her power many times over. Mm -hmm. I think that that may be part of it because he is such like, he thinks himself to be such a Don Juan or something. That. And he's, don't you think he's like using her fear of intimacy against her? Uh, I think maybe that's part of it. And I think also the fact that she's a little dangerous. Oh, it's exciting. Makes yeah. it exciting yeah, for him. Yeah, of course. Him. But once she's up in the air and she sees from afar, he's pretty cute. Her mind starts to wander and she's like, oh, maybe one day there's some kind of hope for something. And that's like an invitation to the reader saying like, yeah. We're, we're setting this up for you. Get ready. This is a delicious couple ready to be devoured for your eyes. She is into it despite everything that her body language is saying. There is a part of her deep down inside that is down. And that's what's so great about X-Men comics, right? It's not about the punching. It's about the shipping. That's what it's about. Right, of it's course. It's Scott and Gene and Logan and Emma. Yeah, we want to see them punch bad guys and each other, but we also want to see them kiss. It's true. It's true. It is a soap opera in the best and goriest way. Gambit notices her scared look, and Wolverine is also very skeptical of their relationship prospects, like going like, give her some time. She's going to come to her senses and so will you. Like like Rogue can't be with people. Like it's clear to Wolverine. It should be clear to everybody. Here's what I'm wondering. If negativity in a relationship or the negativity of a successful relationship is something that kills a relationship, like Rogue has... That skepticism. Well, she about, has so much trauma in her life. Yeah, so she has that skepticism about romance and about all relationships built into her. Yeah. So 
Is this something that Gambit's pie-eyed optimism, is that the kind of thing he can overcome? Well, that's certainly part of the pursuit for him, and that's also the excitement for the reader, because she is an impossible get because of her abilities and her past. And can Gambit actually maintain a relationship without feeding that undeniable sexual hunger that he has? Can he have a relationship without sex? Yeah, without the physical. Right. The gambit of this panel, I don't think so, but the gambit of many panels in our future, yes. And we're going to get to that panel in this episode, but it's a long way from here. Right. It's so crazy to read these four random issues in like one sitting versus when they came out month by month. Like, Issue 24 and issue three are years apart. Really? Yes. Like literal years? Yes, literal years apart. Month to month. I always forget that. The pace of of comics like blows my mind. (laughs) It's the best kind of torture for a 12-year-old. Before we move on, there is one more moment in issue three that I think is worth some comment. And that is after the plasma blast has struck... And Rogue is the one who is charged of getting Professor X out of there. Yeah. While Magneto is standing there insisting on not leaving Asteroid M. Down with the ship. And I think that that instance is another reinforcement to her that close relationships, close ties end in disaster. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is a reinforcement of that relationship negativity that can be the undoing of her romantic life. That's an excellent point. I had not thought about that. It's a huge hurdle for her. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so the next issue is the Big Omega Red reveal, but none of that stuff is as interesting as the basketball game. There is a lot going on there. Right, and so it is Gambit and Jubilee versus Wolverine and Rogue. And they are doing a non-powers-friendly competition match, which goes wild when, um, who is it? Uh, Jubilee? Jubilee accuses Rogue of using her powers because she's being super fast. And Rogue is like, I don't need my powers to beat you at basketball. Yeah, and then that just gives Gambit the excuse to go like, all right, fine, forget this. I'm going to do a backflip. I'm going to charge up this ball with some kinetic energy. I'm going to throw it at Wolverine's face. Wolverine's going to be like, I'm not going to let you score that point. Slice, slice, snick, snick, takes down the basketball net. Needless to say, things get pretty heated and competitive, (laughs) and it ends with Gambit going like, well, then the agreement to not use our powers is off, and he throws an energized ball at Rogue, which causes her to burst through a window, into like interrupting a meeting with Scott Summers. Yeah, the worst thing you can do with Scott Summers is interrupt his meetings. That's right. He is a businessman. <laughs> um, so Gambit, of course, helps Rogue up and is like, well, you know, the prize for beating me at basketball is going on a date with me. And she doesn't say no exactly. She says, like, you know, she uses the phrase flesh to flesh contact, which is like the least sexy thing to say. But she's like, you know, I can't date you in the manner to which you want to be dated. And he once again goes like, I'm willing to take that chance. And even Scott Summers is like, dude, 
I might have laser eyes and a weird vision goggles in my way, but even I can see like Rogue's not into you. And if you look at not just what she, if you not just listen to what she's saying, but look at her facial expressions, yes, she's attracted to him, but she is not happy. And she's extraordinarily skeptical about the outlook of their relationship. That is the narrative she's created. So I know this was the first date issue before I picked it up, but when I turn the pages after this event and suddenly they're going on a date together and she's all dolled out, I was shocked because it did not make sense to me. It didn't because she didn't say like, yeah, sure, let's go on that date. She's like, no, never. So there's this huge chunk of conversation that we're missing. We're missing the actual like invitation of Gambit going like, hey, let's go have a lovely dinner. But even that being said, she did the ultimate girl move of going like, well, I'm going to, if if we're going on this date, I'm inviting Jubilee and Beast for some reason. <laughs> I am, I'm not going anywhere with you where we are alone. But she also decks herself out, right? And when Gambit comments on that, she's like, I don't need to dress for you. I'm going out. I'm dressing because it makes me feel good. Who wouldn't want to wear that, though? She I looks mean, totally bomb. Yep. She even says, like, after all, there may be some real gentlemen at this restaurant. Harsh. So how all that ends up playing out is Gambit and Rogue on a motorcycle together going down the highway, and in Beast's Jeep is Beast, Wolverine, and Jubilee, and Omega Red, he attacks! <laughs> uh, date over. Right. So after the motorcycle is crashed, of course, Gambit is like, is Rogue okay? And Rogue does her little banter thing where she goes like, don't pretend you're worried, Gambit. So she's like, you don't care about me, which is not true. He clearly does. It's also worth noting that power-wise between the two, Rogue is far stronger and just simply more powerful than Gambit as a being. That might actually be a better point. He's pretending to be a gentleman and she's like, duh, I'm Rogue, I'm fine. (laughs) Yeah. Now we're on to issue eight, which is easily my favorite of the four that we read. And man, do I love this stuff, even though it involves so much crazy bishop future timeline nonsense that I barely have an understanding of. And if you don't understand what's going on, I am totally in the weeds. Well, this whole story about the ex-trader took four years to finally resolve itself. And even though Bishop in this issue is very concerned about Gambit, who is this guy with this Thieves Guild past, the answer to who the ex-trader was turns out to be Professor X himself, who projected this crazy psychic monster, which was a melding of both Magneto's brain and Charles's brain into Onslaught. I think the only reason... Bishop zeroed in on Gambit is because Gambit antagonized him immediately. Because that's what Gambit does. (laughs) Like, if Jubilation is the last X-Men, then who are you? He turns the tables on him. And Bishop is like, ooh, my manhood, Professor X, scan this guy for loyalty, because clearly (laughs) he's going to do some kind of heinous thing in the future. And Professor X is like, I don't I don't think that's necessary. I've been hanging out with this dude. And Rogue actually steps up and steps in for him and goes like, that's insulting. And Gambit later thanks her and teases her and says like, Cherie, I didn't know you cared. And she goes, I'm sorry. Did I give you the impression that I cared? And I, like they always have this false antagonism as a couple. And 
how do you feel, like, if we're out with another couple and they're doing kind of antagonistic banter, like, how does that make you feel? Uh, well, I mean, it is a trope in literature and cinema. You see it all the time. Uh, it doesn't necessarily bother me so much there, this little cat and mouse thing, this little negging thing, cutesy negging. Uh, in real life, I hate it. Yeah, because it feels like, because when you're watching it in person, you're like, where do I, like, am I, should I be going like, cut it out, guys? And the only places I really see it in the world is with young couples mm -hmm. and my parents. Uh, <laughs> now, it's, your mom is antagonistic to your dad, yeah, and your dad is self-deprecating, <laughs> and it's their bit, and it's clearly worked, but it is kind of, it can be awkward, but- <laughs> If words are magic, mm. like eight days implies, how how would being falsely antagonistic influence a relationship? Well, it, would it, that turn? Would those magic words turn their flip the switch? Uh, I mean, it is it is leading to their narrative. It is building their relationship, and they have to decide like, is this is this part of our DNA? Is this part of our romantic DNA? But I'm just not talking like. Rogan Gambit. You're saying everybody. Like, ev yeah. like every couple. Like, do these banter couples, do they stay together besides your mom and dad who are uh, clearly very happy? I think we answered it with my mom and dad. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's clearly worked for 45 years for them. Yeah, but like your mom will tease your dad about some adorable ineptitude in the kitchen. And she, <laughs> like, she may prod him, but if he did that to her, oh, yeah, no. their marriage would be over. <laughs> they would not have lasted 45 years. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I see what you're saying there, but there are couples that have that dynamic. But I just don't think that it's sustainable because if you have this negative talk going two ways, even in jest, it is going to create a negative that degradates the relationship that's going to have to be addressed. Whereas my parents have a like a one-way street going on with that dynamic. Right. And your dad takes every opportunity to lift up your mom. And your mom does find your dad very charming. Yeah. Okay. All right. That is totally true. And even within these four issues, that back and forth can't be sustained narratively. Rogue and Remy have to evolve beyond that, like, cat and mouse flirtation stage. But we're not there yet because it's picnic time and we've got treats to taste. A little boysenberry pie. <laughs> I'm getting into this accent thing. You know, for someone who is so scared of physical touch, Rogue wears very little for her picnic. She wears short shorts. Is that a thing? <laughs> it is a thing. I don't, I don't know about the clap on, clap off the short shorts. I, I wish. I w Oh, jeez. Who are you, Remy? Um, yeah, so, but they are sharing a picnic blanket and a basket. I don't know if this counts as a date because everybody else is like around and hanging out. Oh, Gene and Scott and Psylocke. Oh, what a splash page. So awkward. <laughs> I'm turning the page. Um, let's go to Rogan Gambit. Gambit apologizes that it's not champagne, but Rogue is super proud of having made this entire basket of food with her own two hands. A boysenberry pie. Yes, who wouldn't want a boysenberry pie? That's no small feat. Made by a Southern Belle. Yes, that's, give it to me. That's legit. Um, but when she says, my own two hands, he says, 
I'm going to read from the book. If I made a list of things to do with your own two hands, stirring gumbo wouldn't be on it. (laughs) Gross. And then later, like, she's embarrassed. She's so embarrassed, she drops her plate of food, and she goes... You certainly know how to get under a girl's skin. And then he says, I'm trying. (laughs) It's he's too much. Love it. He is way too forward. I think he's edging up on creepy. This is why I never had any dates in middle school. Oh, because you took all your pages from the Gambit handbook, the Remy LeBeau. I sure did. Oh my goodness. So she physically runs from him, and they have that same old argument, like, if you touch me, I'm going to destroy you. You got to remember, every comic is somebody's first, so you got to keep bringing this stuff up. But hasn't she literally said that in this very issue? Like, has somebody had some kind of brain injury? (laughs) But anyway, she, she says... That's all I need. Thoughts. Oh, should I do the accent again? I can't help myself. Try it. In. Ugh. That's all I'd need. Thoughts of you running through my head 24 <laughs> hours a day. <laughs> Getting worse and not better. Yeah, but what's Gambit's response there? It's perfect. How dat be any different than now? <laughs> but, like, he's not wrong. Like, she's clearly crushing on him. Yeah. And he's tuned into that. They keep, at this point, they are pairing up at every opportunity outside of a battlefield. But she's not, like, she's put the line at, I'm not willing to discuss physical touch right now. And he is defying that boundary at every point. To the point where she runs away from him. She wants to be near him, and he drives her away with being like, I know, like, I know what you can do with those two hands up and down my pole. So there is a version of this story which is all about consent, right? Yeah. Like, there, like a, a 2019 writer would take these, these early flirtations and it would be a consent story. And I think it would be very, very interesting. But of course, Scott Lobdell and the comics industry at this point has no ability to have that talk. But I, I can't help but see that they're on, in this issue. And Remy does eventually get the message it takes several issues and he is a little distracted in this one anyway because then bishop comes and punches him in the face fight 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 and with that blow remy gets knocked off of his heels and bumps into rogue who gets knocked on a cliff and takes it personally she's like i hope you didn't do that on purpose as she's falling from the sky and um of course then Gambit is incensed, and we have this little, like, <laughs> yeah, um, right. powers off. And he's like, what are you going to do to me? I can energize any object like this boysenberry pie. And just when he throws the pie. Bishop ducks. Bishop and ducks. and Boom. Right in Rogue's face. And she is angry. I think mostly because... She worked hard on that flipping pie. And then the next panel, as she's charging or flying straight to them, there's this tiny little panel of Bishop and and Gambit laughing together, which is just like brutally insensitive on both parties. I, yeah, I put that in my notes as like. I think that's a result of Marvel method storytelling. You know, Jim Lee puts this all out together in panels. He breaks it down. He does all the art. And Scott Lobdell has to come in and fill in the bubbles. And, you know, he does his best job to make those three panels work. As they're laughing, Bishop is like, is this wise? And uh, 
Gambit is like, keep laughing or she'll kill us. <laughs> so he is completely dismissing and undermining her emotions. And she's mad. And she's like, I'm going to knock that smile off her face. But then he just kind of diffuses the situation with a joke like, well, I, I have nothing to worry about because I've got it on good authority that I'm going to outlive. I'm going to be the last X-Man because I mean, I'm the traitor. <laughs> that, that's pretty great. <laughs> it is pretty great. And it immediately puts Rogue back on his yeah. side, which I think is kind of quick considering the betrayal. Yeah, yeah. But, and how mad but she but was. But also kind of sweet. Like, I like that turn. I find, I find the paneling weird. I find the laughing weird. But... When he uses Bishop's, uh, you know, prophecy to get back into the good graces of Rogue, I think that just really works for me. I just think that there's just a lot of red flags there. Gambit not reflecting on her boundaries. Rogue sure. blaming Gambit sure. weirdly for bopping her off a cliff. Cliff. Him undermining her feelings and disarming her by laughing at her. Like, I think all of that spells trouble in the future. Yeah, yeah but there, there, yes, there's a lot of red flags. Gambit's got a lot of growing up to do. Oh, and then comes another huge red flag because it's Belladonna bursts on the scene and Bishop is like, hey, that's my wife. Yeah, and then Ghost Rider and another adventure, but we're not going into that. We're jumping over to issue 24. I like how on the cover, though, they're like, special appearance by Ghost Rider. And it literally is like... Like, just an appearance. Yeah, it's like, one panel. It's a, pic- <laughs> it's a quick pick. You get a quick pick of the GR. Hey, Ghost Rider, 90s, almost as big as the X-Men. Every time I hear Ghost Rider, I always think of Ghost Rider from PBS. It's not that. I know. You should read the Ghost Rider adventure because it, it it becomes a crossover. So you have to read the Ghost Rider comics as well as the X-Men comics. And it goes down to New Orleans and Ghost Rider gets infected by the brood aliens. There's a big battle with the Thieves Guild. It's pretty cool, Lisa. Sounds like a hoot. It is. Let's roll into issue 24. We finally get to see Rogue and Gambit go out for a proper date. And a kiss. Look at that cover. The, I I am continuously baffled by comic book covers because this does not, like, this embrace, she is, like, jumping into his arms and it looks like they're about to kiss. Like, this doesn't happen in this issue. No, but it's like a, it's like a poster for a Roger Corman movie, right? You, you gotta put butts in the seats. You gotta get those spines cracked. Oh my gosh, Rogan Gambit are finally gonna make out. This is the issue you need. It's issue 24. But when I'm like at the comic book store and I'm seeing all of these beautiful like single issue comics and I'm looking for something to read and I see this really intriguing cover, then I open the book and it's a completely different artist. Like that's like, I don't know, if you put Cheerios on the front of the box of cereal and then you opened it up and it's like, ha ha, Wheaties. At least this is the same artist. Yeah, that's true. You make an excellent point. I went on. Attention. <laughs> but but at least that cover is emotionally true. It is. It is. Now you open the cover page proper, and we have another image of Remy and Rogue being very, very close. And she has a tear running down her cheek. And digging deeper. <laughs> digging deeper. Between hope and sorrow. Yeah. Let's not get dirty. <laughs> um, but this image on the title page is actually a flash forward. It's a, it's a little taste of what's to come. And you know that immediately because you turn the page and they are sitting finally at a restaurant 
There might even be candles on the table. I can't tell. It's Papa Gumbo's Cajun cookout. I think that, like, that's a bad date move. I think that if I was trying to seduce someone, I would take them to a place that tells me that I know them and not a place. Like, if I were to try to seduce Rogue, I would take her to a place with really good Southern cooking to go, like, I'm interested in your needs oh, you and wants. So? Instead of taking her to a Cajun restaurant and going like, this is me, baby. Well, don't you think it, but it also shows like he is in his element. Like, like I do know everything that is on this menu. I am a master of my, my domain. But like, I take it from the perspective of the first mixtape you give someone. The first mixtape you give someone is I want to show you the understanding that I know your taste and I can expand upon your taste instead of the first mixtape you give someone is like, this is all of the music that I like. It's weird. I but, hope you like but it. But Lisa, that's not what I did with you. I did make a, a, a mixtape where it was like, this is who, what I like. But you put the Arctic Monkeys on there, which you had never listened to before. Be, well, that was like my way of luring you into exactly. the other stuff. Exactly. You put music you knew I liked on mm. that mixtape to show that you were listening to me and you understood me. So I take you to a restaurant that has a little Southern food but it's mostly Cajun sauces. <laughs> I don't think you get the point. Luckily, you've already bagged this dame. But I'm, you you single people out there, I am dropping some really great advice. If you have a crush on someone, take them to a place you know they'll like, but they haven't been to before because that shows that you are listening and you understand that person. I'll take your word for it. Don't. You're married already. Okay. Um, the date is clearly going very well, because in this first panel, Rogue is crying into a, a cloth napkin. Um, but it's because Colossus's sister, Eliana, has just died, and she is feeling guilt for taking this moment to... Have a good time. To have a good yeah. time. And I think that's extremely vulnerable of her to to share that emotion with him and not put on a brave face. And what it allows him to go like, look, you know, we're the ones who's left. We have to, you know, use the yeah, time she, that we have. She He offers her a new perspective. This sweet, vulnerable moment is immediately dissipated by a joke because... Rogue is seen like wiping her face and he thinks it's because she's crying and she's like, no, I'm spitting this gumbo out. <laughs> but then he laughs in a way where she's like, that was like a real genuine Remy laugh. And I've never seen that before. So she takes that genuine moment as an opportunity to be like, so what's the deal with Belladonna? Why don't you ever talk about her? Which is kind of rough because in that Ghost Rider crossover, she died. What? <laughs> yeah, she's dead. Don't worry. She'll be back. Uh, okay, good. But he then deflects in a hurtful way and is like, well, uh, what's your real actual name? How come you don't use your real name? Ooh. And then she's like, why can't you tell me how you actually feel about me? And he's like, well, why don't you just let me show you? Like, I want to get under that skin. Oh, God, Lisa. No. And, <laughs> and I just feel like this is two people who are not in the habit of communicating openly and honestly, and this is going to be a huge obstacle if they're going to get real. 
at some point they have to drop the barriers. And they do in this very issue. But first we have to have an aside with Myra and Jean has to pick up Scott from the airport and we have all of this kooky stuff between Betsy Braddock and Kiwan, and there's other stories going on. And all of that stuff is building to the Executioner's Song, which is like the next big major arc. Actually, that happens after Fatal Attractions. So we've got like two huge X-Men arcs on the horizon. Snooze! <laughs> Kissing, please! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gonna happen right now, Lisa. Right, because after dinner, so we pick back up with Rogue and Gambit on a romantic carriage ride, and they banter in a slightly more kind fashion to each other, and she vaguely consents to sexual activity via his innuendo. He's like, where would you like to go? And she's like, anywhere you do, Remy. And he replies, now you sure that's how you want to phrase it to me, hon? And you get this shot of her eyes, and they are so filled with concern. But, but that's she, a great panel. Andy Kubert, high five. Yeah. And she replies with a weak, uh-huh. Yeah, it's a little predatory. <laughs> a, a little bit, but, like, she's, she's expressing openness to it because she wants to have a relationship, and she feels like this is what it's going to take. So he takes her gloved hand and puts it to his lips and she looks really nervous and sh and he's like I'm willing to take this risk for you. So he's like go like going like if what you're concerned about is me, don't worry about it. Like I'm willing to do this. And she continues to resist and gives him her usual I can't speech. But then she turns her back on him, keeping in mind body language. She's turning her body away from him and tells him about Cody. Right. So yeah. Cody was her first kiss, and he straight up died yep. from that moment. And Gambit finally hears her and goes like, then we don't kiss, Rogue. Maybe we both have to learn there's more to love than the physical. And so this is an essential moment, right? Like if if he had kept going at this point, you're, you're, it's it's enough, right? We've had that like back and forth, back and forth for, for two years on Adjectiveless X-Men. And now he has to realize, I love you so much that if I can't have you physically, I still want to have you emotionally. And this plays into Eight Dates and the Gottmans. One of their main points is like, yeah, sex is important to a relationship. Physical attraction is important to a relationship. But what the real core of a relationship is, is deep respect, admiration, and friendship. And so he's telling her, like, I can do without this part of the relationship because I want the thing that's essential. I want this connection with you. Yeah, and that's cool. It's a great moment. It's beautiful. And so then she turns to him and goes like, well, 
since he's not going to get any from me, I have to give him something. Mm. And so she begins, like, which women feel, like, women feel on dates. Like, they feel like, ugh, this guy has paid for the whole dinner, and he ordered a carriage. At least he's going to get a, like, a what? A kiss or a handy or something. (laughs) Um, so he begins, so this is the rogue equivalent to a handy. And she's oh. like, <laughs> she's like, I'm going to tell him my real name. And he declines like a gentleman. Yeah, And the reader's like, oh, we almost knew. But I think that this is a real beautiful thing because he's telling her that for him, she doesn't have to give up anything. Mm. And he, he says, maybe we'll both end up learning what love really means. Like, so love doesn't have to be a deposition where we tell everything, every, everything about each other. And it doesn't have to be about sex, which is what he's been implying for the past 23 issues. So just in these two years, in these issues, this gambit is not that gambit from issue three. Like there has been legit growth. So would you say after that conversation, like, is this a successful first date for Rogue and Gambit? I would say yes. I, th- I think so, too, in that Remy can finally present to Rogue a narrative where their relationship works out. Because he's like, okay, what is the problem? Like, what is the obstacle between you and me? It's kissing? It's sex? Well, let's put that aside for now. Yeah. And I think that that is going to go a long way in not only opening up Rogue to the idea of a relationship with Remy, but healing this deep sense she has that I can't get yeah, close, close to fear, people emotionally terror. because I can't get close close to people physically. Right, right, right. And this is the issue. While I said that issue eight is my favorite issue because it's like the most fun, it's the most like X-Men-y X-Men book, this is the issue where you go like, maybe I do like these people as a couple and I understand the appeal. This was my favorite issue. Of course it was. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. Because this is the issue that says like, these characters are capable of change. They are going to grow from this point on. Where every other issue is like, oh, same old Rogan Gambit. He wants to get in her pants. And she's like, don't touch me. Yeah, give it to Fabian Itier to evolve this relationship beyond a 13-year-old's idea of what romance is. <laughs> Somebody had to do it. So that brings us to the topic of what have we learned from these stories from Rogue and Remy. Um, I learned that no means no. Uh, <laughs> boundaries are important. And what do I always say on this podcast? Communication, communication, communication. Honesty. And if we're going to apply some of our eight dates terminology to that story, like listen to the narrative that the other person is giving you. If Rogue is saying our relationship won't work unless you can change that narrative or influence that narrative, it's not going to work. Take, read the signs. But it took him two years to flip that switch for her, right? But isn't that like so like a man? But right, but what you're saying though is if if Remy had gone by eight dates, right, he would have ceased to desist around issue eight at the most, 
But he eventually, you know, he eventually opened himself. He eventually opened her. They both started talking and there was a relationship. A f- switch was flipped, but it took two years. But like, are you saying like because he was so persistent, he eventually got to rogue? I don't know, but it kind of feels that way. I, I think it does feel that way. No, that's but a I, narrative thing. But what opened her up to him was not like finally she fell for one of his, I guess I will let you under my skin. Like, right, right, It came right. down to him he had to listening to her and presenting her with an alternate story that she had in her head. Yeah, you think all I want is this, but actually what I want is that. Yeah, yeah, listening to her and giving her, her an alternative way to see them as a couple. And he was doing that for himself, too, giving himself an alternative way to see them as a couple. I think that, that those final pages is all of the character arc he had, but it was all of the character arc he needed. So do you think you're going to be applying anything that we've learned to our relationship? I think what I took away from your eight dates discussion is this idea of picking up on the narrative that your partner is writing. And like, are they writing the same narrative that you're writing about them? Right. Right, Like is her story, your story of her. Oh, oh, I like that. I think, I think that's something that I could probably do a better job of rather than just like throwing myself and my opinions out into the world. And I, I like, I, I need to recognize like wh- what's going on with Lisa today and what is what is what is she writing about today's adventure versus what am I writing about my adventure? I love that because I didn't even think of that how like you go like I could go like Brad is having a terrible day because he's saying, oh, I had to get up early. I had to go to the doctor. There's an article on my plate. We've got to finish this podcast. How am I ever going to get done? Accurate, accurate, accurate. <laughs> and I go like, isn't this exciting? Look at the opportunities that that we have. Isn't this better than, I guess, toting that bail? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, true, That true. I can go like. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. I yeah. like that idea. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about like, I feel like as a couple, we're really good about going like, we're great. Our marriage is going amazing and also putting a lot of effort into making it even better. We have a growth mindset about us as a couple. Anytime we hear the phrase like marriage is work, we always bump against that. What are you talking about? Marriage (laughs) Marriage is is so fun. (laughs) And that was one thing that I was a little concerned about, like when I was going through those bullet points, uh, because one of the bullet points of a, of a, uh, a happy couple is like a happy couple glorifies the struggle where we don't necessarily glorify the struggle. We go like, like between us, we don't struggle. Like there were times that were hard. Like when you were finishing working at retail and it yeah. was really grating on your soul. Sure. There were moments where, yeah. it, but at, like and I we've was, had tons of arguments. I, yeah. <laughs> but I was like in that time, particularly, I was worried about you mm-hmm. as like, what about Brad's happiness? But I was never worried about us or right. I, I, I was never worried about, Oh, Brad's unhappiness is going to pull me down. Yeah. Um, but I did think about it in, going back to the Brene Brown and going back to my self-talk where it's like I should talk to myself like I'm the hero of my own story. Because I I actually also had a really stressful day because 
uh, I, we had to fit this episode in around my work schedule today. So, and since I'm a teacher, like the success of my work depends on how much time I have to think and plan. So, and you had little of that today. So, the entire time I'm going like, well, this podcast is going to suck cuz I'm going to be rushing. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to lead a terrible re- Oh, first I'm going to teach an ineffective piano lesson and a terrible rehearsal. And that was my narrative where I would have had so much better of a day of going like, look at me and Brad being able to get this done and I still can pay the bills doing what I love working with kids, talking about comics. Like, I should have made myself like, ooh, this is the time that we struggle. But So I, I need to glorify my own struggle sure. a little bit It is more. hard to do when you're in the thick of the emotion. But if we were having a what have I learned, how am I going to apply it to my relationship contest, I think you won. Uh, it's, not, it's not a contest, Lisa. Oh, that was a narrative I, I was telling I, myself. I do have another question for you, though. Sure. Uh, it's called Eight Dates. Are we going to go on one of these dates? Like, what's the deal? So that is something I feel like we have to discuss because to do the eight dates, we need to have eight weeks. Well, And we've already used up one of our weeks getting all of this introductory material out of the way. So now we have three weeks. So how many dates do we think we can really go on in uh, three weeks? Three dates? Two dates? Yeah. One date? <laughs> so. Because we've got a lot on our plate. We've got Sundance is right around the corner. Also, we're going to Utah. Right. So what I'm thinking is that we go through the contents of the book and we just pick out randomly which three dates we're going to do. And I do want to put effort into actually doing them because I do think the idea of setting aside an hour of the week where it is a time where we talk about the big questions, we talk about our relationship, and we're putting other stuff aside. I think that that can only be beneficial. Uh, So do you think we should do one date and talk about that on the next episode and then try to do another date on the episode after that and so forth? Yeah, I think we do an abbreviated three dates. Okay, three dates. Three dates. We could do that. So before we go on our dates, though, we have to follow the guidelines. So so here are what the guidelines are. We have to set aside the hour to have our date night, which could be in the morning or the afternoon, wherever we can fit it in. But it should be a priority. So it shouldn't be an hour like, oh, we have an hour now. Let's do our date. It's like we need to forecast because that is something that happens with us us a lot where finally we find ourselves hanging out together and we may or may not have a kind of open-minded, open question discussion. Like, I feel like the last time we did that was towards the end of my vacation and we had just gone to all of the comic book stores and we had bought all of the comics. (laughs) And then we just found ourselves at this random gluten-free bakery And we had like a really nice chat and I left and we had a lot of nice chit chat in the car that I really enjoyed. And I wish like, and the only reason we had time to do that was because we were both on vacation. Right, right, right. Where like when we're together, we're like, oh, you know, we're doing pot. Like sometimes 
the most talk we get to have is into this microphone. That's true. So let's find an hour this week. Let's schedule it beforehand. Let's achieve that hour. We can do that. Good. The next thing is no phones or other communicating gadgets allowed. That's harder, but possible, possible. And movie dates. Oh, no. And group dates don't count. Okay. So it has to be an hour of talking and listening. Yeah, I'm I'm down with that. I agree. I agree because like a movie date is a very different thing than a dinner date or a walking date or whatever. Exactly. And then um, we're not allowed to talk about work on our date. So I think we do a pretty good job of not doing that. No, because like (laughs) Julie and John Gottman, they work together. You and I, like this podcast, Sundance, those kinds of things, they're the things we do for fun, but it's also kind of work Uh together. uh Okay. So there's no work talk. Okay, okay. No comic talk, no Sundance talk, got it. And the last thing is you have to read the chapter of the book in advance. Okay. The whole chapter. I can do it, Lisa. Yeah, you can. It's been a while since I've had no pictures with my reading, but uh, I think I remember how to do it. Uh, if not, uh, I could just act, act it out for you. I would just, I'll just strike poses oh, and stuff. We should put all that video up on the socials. No, no work talk. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay, so on top of that, we also have to pick our next Rogue and Remy storyline. Uh, this is kind of cool. We're going to cover both the Gambit miniseries from 1993 and the Rogue miniseries from 1995, both written by Howard Mackey. Eight issues in total. Both books go a long way in opening up their romance, as well as exploring the mysterious past of Gambit. From Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love, Brad and I will be picking our dates from dates one, two, or three. So we're either doing date one, lean on me, trust and commitment, date two, agree to disagree, addressing conflict, or date three, let's get it on, sex and intimacy. Let's not do that one. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that uh, on the podcast. That was where I was going. That was my date. That (laughs) That was the date I was picking. (laughs) All right, Lisa, it's time to spit out that gumbo, toss that boysenberry pie. Oh my, you really know how to get under a girl's skin. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you this week? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxed. Yes, that you're is on true. There. Yes, you're <laughs> back. I'm back. Don't forget, you can email the podcast by writing to cbccpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. We want your comments. We want your questions. Maybe you want some relationship advice. We haven't done that yet. That would be wild. And you, Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, send them to all social medias at MouthDorkAppleJ. I really hope we did you proud. All you new listeners that have joined us because of Rogan Remy, welcome. Thank you. Let us know how we did. Even if we've infuriated you, let us know. But make sure you commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast and by subscribing to us on Podbean, Spotify, and iTunes. And when you're on iTunes, make sure that you give us the gift of five stars. It really warms our heart and helps the pod. So until next time, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Sugar. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson, Shelley. Oh, mon ami. I don't know French. I'm Brad Gullickson. You shouldn't do French. You should use your Southern accent. Oh, sugar. <laughs> and each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm. I was not prepared for that, Lisa. We should have planned that. Let's actually redo it and then this can be our stinger. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>